Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. So we begin our uh, we began our Latin uh, sermon series here last week entitled God's Upside Down Kingdom. Last week, Pastor Marv shared with us his, a story about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. We saw how Satan used the same old trick he used in the garden, where he twists God's words, telling Adam and Eve they surely won't die if they eat from the tree of life. Again. Here in Jesus' trip to the wilderness, Satan tried to malign God's words to try to catch Jesus at a time when he had been weakened after fasting for 40 days, to try to lead him off course, to try to derail Christ's mission, to try to subvert the way, God's, the way of God's kingdom, to try to get in the way of God's kingdom coming. Where in his last-ditch effort of trying to tempt Jesus, he so brazenly tried to trick Jesus into kneeling before him, to worship him, saying he will receive all the world's kingdoms just like that if he simply bows down and worships him. You know, a real clean, once-and-done transaction. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Even in his weakened and hungry state after fasting, spirit-filled and spirit-led, Jesus doesn't bow down to this offer. Because what Satan is flashing in front of Jesus is not the way to the kingdom. It is not the way God calls his kingdom into being. And as we learned from Jesus, there is no way into the kingdom without the cross first. The temptations of Satan are no more than illusions that we can make a shortcut for ourselves and circumvent the narrow path God has laid out for us. But what does this narrow path that God has for us truly look like? How does our cross look in relation to the one Jesus carries? Does your path, your path look like Peter's or Paul's? Well, the passage we're going to look at today gives us Jesus' perspective on what the path looks like for a specific man he encounters with his disciples that sheds light on that very topic. So with that, I would like to invite you to follow along with me as I read from our scripture today from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jumping into our passage today, it's important to note that right before his encounter with the rich man, Jesus had just gotten done blessing little children and correcting his disciples for seemingly attempting to restrict the flow of these little children's access to him. And just as Jesus finishes explaining how these children receive the kingdom of God as the only way to enter, a man runs up to him and kneels before him. Now Mark's account of this event doesn't actually tell us who this man is, nor does Matthew's account. Luke is the only one of the three synoptic gospels to actually introduce the man to us in the narrative as a certain ruler. In any case, by the end of this passage, it is clear that this man kneeling before Jesus has significant wealth and affluence. From where we are looking from last week, a scene where Satan unsuccessfully attempts to get Jesus on his knees to worship him, the scene we have this week looks quite the opposite. You see, the man on his knees in front of Jesus is someone who has acquired much wealth, and it would seem as though he has everything he needs right at his fingertips. So ironically, this week, we have one of those rulers of the world, the kind of reign that Satan was offering Jesus, maybe on a smaller scale. But here we have one of those rulers on his knees asking for entry into eternal life, or said another way, into the kingdom of God. Despite all the success that this rich guy apparently has had, he still seems to have a burning question on his heart, something that he's not so sure about, it appears. And so he has obviously heard about Jesus and the good news that the kingdom of God is near, and so he makes haste to find out what he needs to acquire this too. And like everything else he's acquired in this life, he's figured out how to present himself well. So he figures he might need to go and get on his knees and make another pledge, make a good showing of whatever Jesus is promising shouldn't be any different or any more out of reach than anything else he's managed to acquire for himself in life. So when the rich man asks Jesus what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, you know the commandments. This rich man, in his abundance of self-confidence, tells Jesus that he's got that covered and he's kept them since his youth. We are told then Jesus loves him after hearing the rich man's response before he tells him the one particular thing he needs to do, which is to sell all his possessions and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. There is no pause in their conversation, but you might get the suspicion that this rich man had a quite different interpretation of the law than Jesus. Since right after telling Jesus he's kept all of them, Jesus critiques him, telling him, that there is one thing he lacks, and with that critique, the rich man we see departs in grief. If there wasn't a different way of interpretation of the law, and this guy indeed kept all the commandments, why then is he being told that there is one thing he lacks, and subsequently it just so happens to be tied to all his worldly assets and possessions, and that selling them would correct for that thing that he lacked? Well, if you're paying close attention, Jesus didn't list all the commandments. He only mentions five and then adds one. The one he adds, you shall not defraud, is not actually one of the commandments listed, 
though it seems closely related to the command, you shall not covet. And the choice of using the word defraud rather than covet falls in line with a specific command Jesus has for this man inquiring how he is to fulfill what he lacks in keeping the commandments, which is in specific instructions from Jesus to divest himself from all of his possessions and then come and follow him. And while this is a pretty clear command that is being given, we have to be careful not to misread this command for this man as a universally required command for everyone to sell all their stuff to follow Jesus, because obviously that's not what happens, that not everyone is expected to sell all their stuff to follow Jesus. If we look at Peter, he retains his house in Capernaum, he retains his boat, his fishing tackle, and remember the itinerant group of disciples with Jesus who are following him were dependent on hospitality and the provisions provided by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of Bethany. So Jesus is not telling everyone they must sell all their possessions and give to the poor. But for the rich man, this is a specific command and what is being asked of him. And by his reaction of walking away grieving, it says something to how difficult this, re this request is for this man to swallow. Because, as we were told, he had many possessions. We can see by his reaction that he did not anticipate that Christ was going to ask so much of him on this day. Perhaps the rich man just overheard Jesus telling the disciples to let the little children come to him and thought, hey, if a child can enter the kingdom, it must be easy, right? Perhaps he thought that maybe this is his opportunity now to try to jump in front of the line to get into the kingdom. But when he gets to Jesus and finds out that he must divest himself of his possessions and all the influence and power he has consolidated, he finds himself in a tough spot. This isn't the sort of deal he is used to where he is, has to do a complete 180 from the life that he was used to living and start from scratch with no possessions. I mean, if you think about it, when you think of powerful people with wealth, we typically associate a certain shrewdness about them also and they're not used to losing out much on a deal. So this would no doubt be a shocking proposal from Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say the rich man's done after selling his possessions and giving them to the poor. He tells them, after he does that, you'll have treasure in heaven. But there is also the last part, the then come and follow me. There is still the getting there part, and that is stretched out without any indication of how much that will take following Jesus, who shows he is willing to lead him there. This should be good news on the other side of the hard news that this man has to face, that after he has turned from his ways of mistreating others to enhance his own wealth, there is a new and better route for him that is redeeming. If you stop to think about it, this is good news for all of us that Christ shows up for us, loving us even in the midst of our own particular sinfulness. He comes and shows us with his righteousness what righteousness looks like compared to our condition so that we can see our error, so that we can turn away from what separates us from his love, and with a contrite heart we can turn into his love and receive the grace that saves us through him. The kind of response Christ is calling on the rich man to make is an about face from the life he was previously living. The Greek term for this kind of transformative turnaround is metanoia, and in plain English we call it repentance. Somewhere along the line, though, the term repent has gotten a bad rap lately. 
I guess because it makes us feel bad. And we don't want to feel bad. But here's the thing I've observed in life. Most of the time when we are sick, the healing usually requires some discomfort, at least in the beginning, before we begin to be restored to our full health. And should leaving a way of life behind that leads to death in exchange for a way of life that leads to true life following Christ be any different? The short answer to the rich man's question, what it is he must do to inherit eternal life or to enter the kingdom of God, is this, that anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose it for Jesus' sake will save it. But the problem the rich man has is that he probably didn't want to see what he was doing wrong since it enriched him. From the rich man, it appears he must give back what he has taken because it has apparently deprived others. To join Jesus in his mission and in his kingdom work is to be a life-giving presence in the world that doesn't defraud or deprive our neighbors, but rather serves them and cares for them. To be a life-giving presence in the world that is always pointing to the one who leads us, the one who saves us, that is what the shape of our life becomes by abiding in the specific call to each of us and then following as we're told to do. For each of us, our call is different, though we may find others who have similar demands placed on them. Maybe we have a different idol in our lives we are clinging to that is barricading us in our entry to the kingdom life now. Maybe it's an addiction to a substance. Maybe it's tied to our self-ambition with our career. Maybe it's the way we treat others. Maybe it's envy or jealousy. Maybe it's our unwillingness to forgive. Most things, if you look close enough, do not just affect us alone, but have a profound way of affecting the well-being of others around us. Sin doesn't just separate us from God. It also sows divisions between us and our brothers and sisters. But as we find ourselves speeding through life, we can easily lose sight of this fact that God created us in community to be connected, not just with him, but with each other, to be a blessing to one another, to be able to count on one another while we all count on him together. And the reality is that if we slow down to listen to God and follow the path he has for us rather than the plans we try to make on our own without him, he will give us a taste of his resurrected life now that is life-giving now for us and the people we share life with. When we start to see the weight of what we're carrying compared to the yoke Christ has for us to bear, to paraphrase Karl Barth, we will see the yoke we have made for ourselves is a hundred times more heavy than the one Jesus has for us. When the disciples heard Jesus remark how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, they were perplexed. Seeing Jesus tell a wealthy man that he must be willing to let go of all his possessions, someone who has a lot to lose, this in our human way of thinking would be hard to process. And then Jesus lovingly reassures them, referring to his disciples as children, differentiating them from this rich man and his predicament. See, if you recall right before our passage, Jesus just got done correcting the disciples, telling them to let the children come to me, explaining to them that receiving him the way the little children are coming to him is the only way it is possible to enter the kingdom of God. And if you think about it, 
The little children come to him without reservation, just as the disciples did. Remember Peter and Andrew when they dropped their nets to follow Jesus without any apprehension? There is a call and there is a response, and it is clear. Jesus comes and shows us with his right, what his righteousness looks like because the kingdom is near. He brings it to us in himself, his lordship, and in his word. Only Jesus could perfectly keep all the commandments, despite what the rich man may claim. We all have blind spots in our lives, and maybe this is the rich man's blind spot. But when Jesus shows him the law from another angle, how the rich man's interpretation of the law has missed a critical spot, and as a consequence, has allowed him to ignore how his wealth was gained on the backs of others to his own enrichment, and how that does not square up with God's interpretation of the law, the rich man finds himself in a dilemma. By showing the rich man what he must fix from the other side to propose relinquishing what he had gained, he now feels the gravity of what he missed, and the fact that ending this way of life is the only way to be able to be received by Jesus and what he is offering. Though in this case, he walks away sad, because it appears to be too much for him. Again, it is not until Jesus comes and shows up to him and shows him how the law connects him with everyone in God and he can see his own brokenness. Whether or not he chooses to follow Jesus' prescription falls on him. Jesus comes and shows us what his kingdom has is something better than what the rich man had, that it's something better than what we've held on to, and what we've had to let go of for his sake. It is something for our betterment that pulls together what seems impossible to hold together. It reconciles what seems impossible to reconcile. When we imagine in our minds what it takes to follow Jesus, we tend to come up with many preconceived notions of what readiness looks like in a person by the way people appear to us on the surface. Who is in? Who is out? By our judgment, whether it is easy for us to admit or not, we too suffer from the same blindness as the disciples who tried to keep the children from Jesus but allowed the rich man through and then were subsequently surprised to see that the rich man wasn't ready to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. It's not us who gets to decide who's ready for Jesus in the kingdom. He alone does. Jesus knows who is ready and who is not by what's in our hearts. He knows who is willing to pick up their cross and follow him. And he knows who values their treasures on earth more than their treasures in heaven. Picking up our crosses and denying ourselves to follow Jesus does not necessarily mean signing up for a life of poverty or that we must all become mendicant monks. It does not mean that we are expected to suffer in every way the Apostle Paul did to follow Christ. It does not mean that we are meant to follow the exact same path and carry the same cross as Peter either. What it does mean is that we do have to take seriously the way we live and that the values we prioritize square up with the values God wants for us. And we need to be willing to let go of the things that keep us from putting God first in our lives, whatever that may be for each of us. Always remembering what might seem impossible for us is never impossible for God. Hey. 
If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.